You pray with me, Heavenly Father, hear our confession today. This is what we believe. We believe in you. We believe in the greatness of your grace and your love. We believe that by your spirit you have drawn us to this place today. And we believe, Father, that if we come face to face with you in worship this morning, that we will not leave here the same, that you will change our lives and change our hearts and change the way we talk and the way we walk and the way we live. And Lord, we welcome that change. We thank you for your presence so real in this place. And yes, Lord, we anticipate all that you are going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good. All the time. It's so good to worship with you today. It's so good, I think, to uh, have our, our choir uh, behind me here. And uh, we appreciated them singing out in front last week. And uh, they were looking forward to this moment when they could be here. And thank you. You sang so well. It is so good to sing and to worship the Lord and to be in this place. What's it like when God fills the room? What's it like when God comes and makes His presence known? I notice in the scriptures it can be a sort of uh, earth-shattering experience, life-changing experience. I think of Daniel in Daniel 10 verse 8 who falls on his face. John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 when he sees Jesus as he really is, falls on his face before the Lord. It is um, a great truth that our God is a consuming fire. And we come into His presence with reverence and awe. Some years ago, there was an interview on CNN of a man who um, had single-handedly, unintentionally interrupted the flight pattern of LAX uh, airport. It all started when this amateur inventor decided to take a ride around his neighborhood in the air. He rigged his lawn chair with a drink holder tied it to the ground, then attached numerous helium balloons to it. He took along a BB gun so he could shoot out the balloons uh, when he wanted to come back down. He thought he would rise about a thousand feet up into the air, but he missed it by a multiple of ten. He ended up about ten thousand feet up in the air. He was a little blip on the radar screen at the airport. This caused some consternation. And by the time he got that high up, he was really not in a mood to use the BB gun to lower himself to the ground. And so he sort of stayed there, suspended in the air until an Air Force helicopter rescued him. And when the helicopter landed and uh, the uh, microphone was there in his face, uh, weren't you afraid up there, they asked. It seems like a silly question, doesn't it? His answer was yes, but wonderfully so. I can imagine that being that high up would be a very frightening experience, but then the rescue and all of that, and for him to say this at the end of the day was a marvelous experience. Might be similar to what Isaiah would have said, though there were no microphones, and I suspect only God and he and the angels were there. But when God came to church, when he filled up the temple with his presence, and Isaiah saw him face to face, we may be assured that for him it was a frightening experience. But... Wonderfully so. Would you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. 
Let's share the word of the Lord together today. Isaiah 6, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 8. We read these verses. If you're astute, you remember we read them last week. And I said to you, I will never come into this place without anticipating that God has preceded us. That He is here. In this beautiful call to worship we heard, this welcoming of the God who welcomes us into His presence. Let's stand together and read His Word. Isaiah 6, Beyond Sin Management. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings, with Two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You may be seated. So what was that like for Isaiah? We said last week it was a, a full experience for him, that God filled the temple and God filled his heart with great fear. I looked at that word filling and full and the room was filled with smoke and that captured my attention as I thought about the connection that God wants to make with us is He wants to fill our lives so full of Himself that He empties our emptiness and He expands our expectations. But I see another word in this passage that captures my attention. It's there in that image of the fiery coal and the smoke that fills the room. And it was for... Isaiah, not only a filling experience, but a a fiery experience. Worship was for him and can be for us multisensory. It was visible for him to see God seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the minute he saw God that high above him, he was finished with low living. And for him, it was a great moment when he heard, wouldn't you love to hear the angels singing, singing, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Visible, audible. And then it was earth-shaking, palpable. The presence of God literally shook the room. And it was tangible and spiritual. And in that moment, Isaiah came to a greater vision of God which gave him a much clearer vision of himself And he discovered that the God who fills the room convicts us of our sin, not so that he can leave us in conviction and guilt, but so that he can remove our guilt and sin and cleanse us from all of our sin. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
I love that promise. But I wonder, what does it do to us to see God, this God who convicts us and cleanses us? What does that mean in terms of starting now, in terms of our sin, as we look out into the future? What does it do to us? Just this week, as I was preparing those devotionals from the Psalms of the Ascents that we posted on our website. By the way, I'm going to continue that with uh, Psalm 135 tomorrow and go through Psalm 150 for the next 15, 16 days. And then on January 1st, I'll start with Psalm 1. And we'll do that for 150 consecutive days. But as I was looking at Psalm 130 this week, I noticed that Isaiah's vision of God, David's vision of God is similar because what David sees in that moment is he says, God, if you kept a record of sins, Psalm 130 verse 3, who could stand? Oh God, please don't be a scorekeeper. Because if you're a scorekeeping kind of God, then one thing I know, I'm in a lot of trouble. But verse 4 goes on to say, but with you there is forgiveness. Isn't that good news? With you, God, there is forgiveness. Therefore you are what? Loved, praised, thanked, adored, worshipped. No, the word is feared. It arrested me again this week. I've read it before, but it got me again. Isn't the scripture wonderful as God speaks to us through His Spirit? And I thought, you are feared. God, when I realize how good you are, how gracious you are, that you're the God who forgives, as one old preacher said years ago, I don't want to grieve the Lord because He's been too good to me. Worship has the potential to be seismic. It could be measured on a Richter scale, the Richter scale of our lives. And what it meant for Isaiah was he used to be a man of unclean lips. But out of this holy connection with a holy God, he is absolutely transformed and his life is changed. And he moves way beyond what Dallas Willard calls sin management, which sometimes characterizes our lives. We manage our sin. We try to do the best we can with it. We try to do more good than we do bad. We are in business to manage our sin. But God is not in that business. He is well beyond that business. And if we would receive it, He could move us. He could move us beyond that. He could transform us. Hear the word of the Lord when... God fills the room. He convicts us of our sin. To see Him in His holiness reveals our unholiness. In, in comparison to the bright, radiant, resplendent glory of God, Isaiah says, Woe is me. He pronounces upon Himself misery and doom. He, he falls on His face. Yes, He knows He's a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. And He starts there. And by the way, before we confess everybody else's sins, we ought at least to confess our own. So He starts with, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. And He begins to confess. And He comes to this cleansing. But it begins with a deep and profound sense of conviction. He takes His cue, verse 2, from the angels. Because they've got two wings to fly. But with the other uh, two wings and the other four wings, they cover their faces and their feet. They, they stand in the presence of a holy God and they stay there all the time. And the very word seraphim means the fiery ones. They live in the fire of God's presence. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 And yet, they're still trying to cover themselves in humility before the holiness of God. And for Isaiah to hear them say, holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of His glory, reminds him that humankind was created to give God glory, but so often with our lips, we don't glorify God. 
And so in the moment he heard them say holy, he realized that he would love to say holy. But for him to say holy would be um, incongruent with the way his mouth usually worked. Why doesn't he say, I'm a man of unclean mind, unclean eyes, unclean hands, unclean feet, unclean thoughts? Why is it his lips? Because as they're shouting, holy, 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 in that moment, I believe Isaiah realized he was created to do that. He was created to shout of the holiness of God. But in that moment, he couldn't because his lips were unclean. And he lived among a people of unclean lips. It wasn't just his problem. Everybody he knew. When it says God is holy, 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 some read into that and say, well, he, he was recognizing, the angels are recognizing the Trinity. Of course the angels know about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But as we look at that, what we see is, what they're saying is, God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's perfectly and completely holy. He couldn't be any more holy than He is. He has a corner on the market of holiness. He has never had a bad day. And when Isaiah realized that, it changed the way he thought. Repentance, literally, the, the, the Greek word for repentance is to change our minds. And Isaiah changed his mind about God. When he saw God... Then he saw himself, and he had no excuses and no alibis. He didn't blame it on Adam and Eve. He didn't blame it on anybody else. He just said, I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. I have seen the one who is I am that I am. And in the presence of I am, all he could say is, I am undone. I am ruined, the NIV says. The ESV says, I am lost. I am coming apart in the presence of God. We work so hard to give the impression that we have it all together. But unless I miss my guess, we're just like Isaiah. We come to church and as much as we want to look like we have it all together, we're sort of undone. One of my little friends, a very gracious little girl, told me that this week she went to school. She was at her locker. She looked down. Her shoe was untied. She knew she was very close to being late to class. So she thought, as soon as I get to class, I'm going to tie my shoe. And so she takes off and she starts heading for her class. And some boy with, bare, with very big feet stepped on her lace. And she said, it wasn't like I stumbled. It was like I crashed face down to the floor. She said, I've never been so embarrassed. And I said, oh, it must have been horrible. She said, I can't ever remember anything worse ever happening to me. And she said, you know, I just, I didn't realize. I should have just tied the shoe, even if I was late. And this is the word that Isaiah uses. He says, I'm undone. And sure enough, he falls face down. And it's one thing for us to sing a beautiful hymn and say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But I'll tell you about Isaiah. He wasn't saying prone to wander. He wasn't saying prone to leave. He was just prone on his face before God. And that sounds like an awful place to be, but in the end, I want you to see, that's a great place to start. They say Billy Graham always starts his prayer time before he goes into a stadium to preach on his face before God. Maybe that's where the power comes from. When he realizes he can't do anything on his own, prone, face down, in that moment he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Can we confess that today, that we live among a people of unclean lips? One pastor was riding his bicycle one day in a little town, saw a little boy sitting on the curb beside his lawnmower. Obviously the lawnmower wasn't working. And 
the pastor thought the boy looked a little bit depressed. He thought he'd make his day. He said, you know what? I'm going to make a deal with you today. He's Monty Hall for a day. I'm going to make a deal with you. Here's the deal. I'll give you my bicycle if you'll give me your lawnmower. Straight up trade. And the little boy said, great. Got on the bike, rode off. The preacher pushed the lawnmower home. A couple days later, he saw the little boy riding by on the bicycle. He said, hey, you took me in our deal. The little boy said, how's that? He said, well, you're riding the bike, but I can't get the lawnmower to work. And the, the little boy said, well, there's a secret to getting that lawnmower to work. You've got to cuss it to make it work. And the preacher said, well, I can't do that. And the little boy said, why not? He said, well, I'm a preacher. I, I forgot about cussing a long time ago. The little boy said, keep pulling that handle. It'll come back to you. You know, well, my father-in-law has this expression. It'll make a preacher cuss. Well, what's it take? Well, that's what Isaiah is saying. Here he is a preacher and he's saying, I'm a man of unclean lips and we live among a people of unclean lips. How profane is our culture? When did that which was always wrong suddenly become okay? Why is it so hard to get the FCC to say, you can't say that on television. You can't put that on the motion picture screen. Why is it so hard? Because we have become desensitized to foul language. And... Um, I want you to know God's standard, God's holiness has not shifted. I have this notion someday we're going to look at our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and say it happened on our watch and we are ashamed to say it. But while we were on watch, the, sh the, the, the language of our culture went to the dogs and it just breaks my heart. And if you can see that, you can understand the way Isaiah must have been feeling about that. Maybe... Maybe it's not language. Maybe it's, it's talking badly about other people. I read Rabbi Telushkin's little book of words that harm and words that heal. And he asked the question in the book, can you go 24 hours without saying something bad to somebody or about somebody? Can you go 24 hours? And he said, I only ask because if you couldn't go 24 hours without an alcoholic beverage, you would say, I have an alcohol problem. If you couldn't go 24 hours without buying a scratch-off ticket, you would say, I have a gambling problem. And if you can't go 24 hours without saying something bad to somebody or bad about somebody, he said, can we just admit uh, we have lost control of our tongues? James chapter 3 verse 2 says, if you could control your tongue, you would be a perfect person. It's like the rudder, the little rudder that makes a big ship go in a direction. Tongues are directional. They shape the whole course of our lives. They're like a spark that sets a, a forest on fire and burns down the whole forest. They have great destructive potential and Isaiah realizes that he's a man of unclean lips and something has to be done about it. In Oregon some years ago there was a, a problem in a local middle school. It seems that um, the young girls at the middle school had discovered lipstick and uh, they were putting their lipstick on at school after they left home apparently and then they were blotting it against the mirror in the bathroom and uh, so there were little lip prints all over. And this was bothering the custodian. He went to the principal and said, we got to do something about this. The principal said, I have an idea. Gathered all the little girls into the uh, ladies' restroom there and said, you see all these lip prints? We could do DNA testing. We could find out who they are. We're not going to do that. I just want to show you how hard you make the custodian's day. Show them what you have to do. And the custodian took a long brush and he dipped it in the lavatory. And then he washed the mirror. And the little girls watched and they have had no more problems <laughs> with lip prints on the mirror. And I only say that to say, if you and I knew what our sin costs God, we would want nothing to do with it. To see Him high and lifted up is to say, I am finished and done with low living. 
I don't want to talk that way anymore. I don't want to walk that way anymore. God's been too good to me. I don't want to grieve Him anymore. And the good news is the God who convicts us of our sin is also the God who cleanses us of our sin. I want you to see the grace here. Isaiah doesn't fix his own problem. This is grace. He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to try harder to do better. That's sin management. And he can't do better on his own. And he knows that. It's not as though God says, okay, I'll make a deal with you. You try a little bit harder, I'll give you a little bit. No. God sends the angel. The angel picks up the coal. The angel touches his lips. The angel tells him your guilt is gone and your sin has been atoned for. It is all God. And you look at that story and say, well, it's just kind of an unfamiliar story. No, it's a very familiar story. God does all the work. God pays the price in full. We know this story very well. It's not a matter of Isaiah trying to clean up the mess of his life. He knows he can't clean it up. But the good news is there's a, an angel, a fiery one, who, by the way, doesn't pick up the coal well, with hands, but with tongs. Because even the fiery one knows how hot that fire is. And the altar, by the way, is the place of sacrifice. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says, we don't have to bring animal after animal anymore to the altar. Because once and for all, Jesus has done it. Jesus gave up His life so that you and I could be forgiven. We were up in Waco yesterday for Parents Weekend. We have a, a son up there who's a freshman in college and he's entered a choir. It's so interesting. There's, this is a great thing about graded choirs, you know, because he resisted us for years and now he can't wait to sing in choir. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great experience. We're rejoicing in this. And I overheard him saying to a friend of his yesterday, have you heard this song? Have you heard this song? Jesus paid it all? <laughs> his friend said, no, is it good? He said, you got to hear us. You know, my son, he's still a basketball player at heart. You know, he said, we dominate with this song. It's so good. You know, Jesus paid it all. We're going to drive four hours this afternoon so we can go hear him sing. Jesus paid it all. Because I don't, I can't get enough of that song. I need more of that song. I don't want to hear about what, what Dwayne can do. I want to hear about what Jesus did. Jesus paid it all. And listen to what the angel says after. Does this sound painful? But it doesn't say Isaiah experienced any pain. Why? Because forgiveness costs God everything. And we receive it as a gift. And the angel says, your guilt has been taken away. Isn't that good news? Those of us who are guilt waiting to happen, is that you? You're feeling guilty about something. You just don't know what it is yet. You know, you just, you're always feeling guilty about something. I remember Paul Turnier writing about a man, sadly, walking through the streets of Paris saying over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know people who live that way, live apologetically, always trying to make up, like that, like that priest in the movie The Mission who carries the heavy bag of his armor because he killed his brother. He's got to somehow pay for his sin. And finally the priest sets him free from that and cuts the rope and says, you can't carry that weight. Well, the good news is God says your guilt is gone. Your guilt is gone. Isn't that good news? I read a, a little story this week about... Um, a priest in the Philippines, a pastor of his church, and he had a woman in his church who was very deeply spiritual, and she loved the Lord, and she said, you know, sometimes when I'm praying, it's just like I'm talking to Jesus, He's talking to me, it's like I just fall into this dream, and He's talking to me, and I talk to Him, and it's just amazing, and the priest didn't know what to say to that, but, he, you know, we pastors have learned not to question what God is doing in the lives of others, and so he said, you know what, I just want you to ask, he had a deep guilt in his own life about something he had done before he became a pastor, in fact, he became a pastor to try to make up for what he had done. And he said to her, I want you, the next time you talk to Jesus, just to ask him, 
do you know what my pastor did before he became a pastor? And uh, she said, okay, I'll do that. And some weeks later, she came up to him and he said, did, curiously, did, did, you, did you have another of those dreams? Yes, I did. Did you ask him? She said, yes, I, I did. And then fearfully, he said, and what did he say? And she said, God said, I don't remember what he did. Notice he didn't say, I can't remember. But I don't remember. This is the promise of salvation, that you and I can be forgiven, that we can be set free from our sin, that God can take away all of our aches and all of our mistakes and all of our poor selfish griefs. God can take them away. And the question is, will we let God forgive us? Your guilt has been taken away. And He can say your guilt has been taken away. Why? Because the price has been paid. Your sin has been atoned for. This is important. Your sin has been atoned for. William Temple said, the only thing I bring to the deal in redemption, the only thing of my very own I bring to redemption is my own sin from which I need to be redeemed. That's all I bring to the table. It's not like I can say to God, well, I'm going to bring these good things to counteract these bad things and then you're going to have to cover what's left. No, no. The only thing I bring is my sin. <laughs> Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And the good news is God is the God who forgives. He's the God who sets us free. Your guilt is gone because your sin has been atoned for. You've been made at one. It's a relational term. You've been made at one with God. Atonement, at one with God. You're at one with Him. This is a great promise because it means that we can be reconciled to God. I remember reading in Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, about a father who had an, an altercation with his son. It was a very grievous uh, break. The son ran away from home and the father tried to find him, searched for him. It's a story of a prodigal son and a father searching for his son. He searches the streets of Madrid, Spain. He cannot find his son, but he knows he's there somewhere. So he takes out an ad in the local paper and just writes this note. Paco, all has been forgiven. Meet me at the train station at 12 o'clock tomorrow. And the father fearfully goes to that train station, hoping that somewhere in the crowd he can find his son, only to find there 800 young men named Paco who are looking for the dad who is ready to forgive them for their sins. Is that how you came to church today? Are you like me? Were you looking for the God who could clean up the mess of your life? The God who, who welcomes all of His prodigals to come home to Him? Because if you're looking for that God, I have good news for you. Not only was He there for Isaiah, but He is here in this place. And the God who fills the room is the God who finds us in all of our sin and forgives us. And this is seismic worship. The tectonic plates of our hearts shift when we understand that God, if He had us in the very palm of His hand, and He does, would not condemn us, but forgive us through the sacrifice of His Son. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And if the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your forgiveness. Thank You for the greatness of Your grace. 
Cleanse us from our sin. Make us new within. Empower us, Lord, just to receive your gift of grace. Gracious God, great God and mighty Savior, we thank you that you have not come today to keep score, but to save. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. We fear you not with the fear of dread, but with the fear of awesome gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.